Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. When I was growing up in Sunday school, the correct answer to every question, at least the joke, was that the correct answer to every question was Jesus. You know, so you'd hear a story. What's this story about, kids? Jesus, you know. And actually, that's often more right than it's not right. Um, But uh, anyway, so in the spirit of that being the case, I want to ask a question about our Old Testament reading this morning. Um, Because our reading from Proverbs 8 throws us right into the middle of this speech. And we don't really know who the speaker is. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way. Before his works of old, I was set up from everlasting. So who is speaking there? Jesus. That's the correct answer. Jesus. Always Jesus. If you read Proverbs chapter 8, it's actually uh, wisdom personified as speaking. Um, She's depicted as a woman in the streets calling to people walking by and everybody ignores her and they keep going about their business. But for the history of the church, it's long been considered that the subject of Proverbs 8, this personification of wisdom, refers to the second person of the Trinity, the Word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, unfortunately, early on, some heretics, like the heretic Arius, latched on to this passage to say that Jesus was not actually God, but was a creation of God. And indeed, if you read Proverbs 8 on a surface level, you may come to the conclusion that if wisdom is in fact Jesus, then he was created. But this is not a sustainable reading for theological and textual reasons. For example, what is the first thing that we affirm about God in the Nicene Creed? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the Father Almighty. What do you have to have in order to be a father? You have to have a son. You have to have a child, right? Before 2018, I may have had the potential to be a dad, but I wasn't one until Jude was conceived. So if the father is eternal, which we do affirm about him, he's eternal, then that means that he must have also had an eternal son. So the Son is co-eternal. The church father Origen once said, Our Savior is the wisdom of God, but the wisdom is the reflection of everlasting light. The Word has always been with his Father. There has never been a moment where, when he did not exist, or else the Father would have ceased to be the Father. Scripturally, this is actually present in the Proverbs 8 reading from this morning. At very early on in the reading, wisdom says, I was set up from everlasting. Now that word everlasting in the Hebrew means perpetual or forever. A meaning that was enshrined in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, where the word used there for everlasting is ionios, which means eternal. So wisdom is not a part of creation. It's not a thing that God created. It wasn't something that didn't exist and then all of a sudden it started to exist, but rather it is eternal. It has existed eternally alongside God in the Godhead as the Son. So this wisdom from Proverbs 8 is the word who's spoken of in the intro to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. And my theory is John undoubtedly had read Proverbs 8 and had that in mind as he was writing. Because what does he say about the word there? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made by him. So this means that the son is not only co-eternal, but here's your 10 cent theological word for the day. He's consubstantial with the father, of one substance with the father. 
meaning that he's not of a lower uh, type of being than the father. They're, they're on the same level. And we see that wisdom expressed in creation through the intelligibility of creation, the underlying order of creation. Not only that creation exists, but that we can see it and understand it. There has to be something going on under the surface more than just material uh, substances bouncing off one another. Now, the mystery at the heart of the 12 days of Christmas, which we just finished celebrating, indeed, really the mystery at the heart of our whole religion is the incarnation of the word, the taking on of flesh of the Son of God. And when we speak of this event, we speak of one person, Jesus is one person, with two natures. One person, two natures. That he's one person means he has one center of consciousness, a coherent unity, so that when he acts, we can say, Jesus did X. Jesus traveled from this city to this city. Jesus attended the wedding feast at Cana. If he had multiple centers of consciousness, if there was a divine person and a human person sharing the same body, we'd have to ask which Jesus did that. We'd have a schizophrenic Jesus. At the same time, we do affirm that the word subsists in two natures, meaning that Jesus is fully divine and he's fully human simultaneously and in such a way that the one doesn't trade off from the other. And the church has been very clear that these these natures can't be combined or confused. We can't put divinity and humanity in a blender and shake it up and then get a third thing. Jesus has both. He has them completely. He has them fully. So in other words, when Jesus hungered, we can say that was because of his physical body. It was his physical body that hungered, his human body that hungered. His divinity didn't hunger. When he prayed in the garden that the cup would pass from him, that was a prayer from his human will which belonged to his human soul, but his divine will was unchanging. It didn't waver. It was united in his purpose. What this means is that wisdom itself refers to the divine nature of Christ. As a result, we can say that Christ's human nature was fully wise because it was unified with the divine in the person of Jesus, but it wasn't wisdom itself because his body and soul were created things and therefore creaturely. In other words, his body and soul at one point didn't exist, And then they did. The beauty is that in his incarnation, Jesus becomes a roadmap or a template for us to follow. He shows us what Adam and Eve could never show us, which is what human life looks like as it's supposed to be. So what does that mean for us? So what does that mean then if Jesus is wisdom at the end of our gospel reading you, you know the gospel reading. Jesus goes to Jerusalem with his parents where they spend Passover and he stays behind in the temple so that he can debate and discuss and dialogue with the doctors and the teachers of the law. And when they find him, Mary kind of chews him out a little bit. You know, what, what are you doing? And he says, well, you, where else would I be except for here? And at the very end of the reading, it says Jesus grew in wisdom. And so this is the question for the day, I think. If Jesus is wisdom from Proverbs chapter 8, How can he grow in wisdom at the end of Luke chapter 2? Many people have written about this. We could say, uh, and I think it would be correct to say, that Jesus grows in wisdom as a fulfillment of Isaiah 11.2, which predicts of the Messiah that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. The perfect union of human and divine natures in the Incarnation means that the human nature of Jesus 
is bestowed with all of its needs at each particular stage of human development. So, for example, Jesus would have known what perfect obedience was to his parents when he was a child, and he would have acted accordingly. Oh, that that would happen in our house. Anyways, (laughs) that's a whole other sermon. He would have known his father's will in every situation in which he found himself, but we know that his human nature had to grow just like all human natures have to grow. His body grew. He experienced growth spurts. He went through puberty. He had to acquire language. He had to learn social conventions and all the other things that people have to undergo as they mature and become adults. John of Damascus says, by making what is ours, meaning, his human, uh, meaning humanity, altogether his own, he made his own the progress of people in wisdom and grace. And because he's done this, all of us who are moving from the disorder of sin and the woundedness of our human natures can look to him as we grow in union with God because he is the perfect union of God and man. And what is it that this union points us to? If we follow the example of Jesus, what's the result? The answer, I think, can be found in the words of our Lord to his parents when they found him in the temple. He says, I must be about my father's business. I must be about my father's business. In all things, Jesus knew his primary mission, his number one goal, his main priority was to accomplish what he had been sent here to do, to die on the cross for our sins. And throughout his entire life, this one objective stood before him as his primary task. He knew this was his task. He knew this was his task when he had massive crowds following him hanging on his every word when he taught. He knew this was his task when he went off by himself to pray. He knew this was his task when his disciples were often so stubborn and pigheaded and couldn't quite understand what he was trying to teach them. He knew this was his task when he was forsaken by those same crowds that had followed him. He knew this was his task when the 12 left him. He knew this was his task when he was being spit on, when he was being whipped, when he was forced to carry his cross. And he knew this was his task as they were nailing him to the altar of the cross. Everything, everything that Jesus did his entire life was about moving forward to that particular moment. Now, it's true that many of us don't have that kind of clarity about our specific life journey. I mean, we all remember that. You know, you're about to go to college and you're wondering, am I going to the right school? Am I studying the right thing? Am I getting the right job? Who should I marry? What kind of house should I buy? What kind of car should I drive? We don't always, it doesn't always come to us with such clarity of this is what you should do. But that's okay, because I think under the surface of all those sort of accidental questions about who we are, there's an underlying and unified purpose, which is the same calling as what Jesus relays to his parents in the temple. We should be about our father's business. We become about our father's business, not when we pick the right school, the right spouse, whatever that means, but rather when we stop compartmentalizing our lives. We become about the Father's business when we stop saying things like, well, I'll give God my Sunday mornings, but not my Friday nights. We become about the Father's business when we say, when we stop saying, I'm not going to do this sin, but I can't possibly give up this sin. We become about our Father's business when we put aside the lesser goods we've been pursuing as ultimate goods. When we stop seeing financial acquisition, economic prosperity, political power, cultural popularity, and fleshly pleasure as the primary ends for which we have been created. We become about our Father's business when we pursue His vision for human flourishing that's found in submission to His will and call, that we pick up our cross and follow Him. 
We become about our Father's mission when we see him in others, especially the downtrodden. We become about his, his business when we pursue truth, goodness, beauty, and virtue. We become about our Father's business when we recognize that the gospel is the center of our lives and that everything else about who we are is shaped by the fact that God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son for us and that he humbled himself to share our humanity so that we might share in his divinity. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.